You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast. The OPP is brought to you by Natural Stacks. Natural Stacks makes 100% natural and open source supplements formulated with scientific research designed to help you live optimal. For more on optimizing your cognitive and physical performance, visit naturalstacks.com. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I kind of think in some ways, selfishly, that it should remain a secret because it is such an advantage. Natural Stack. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. yourself. All right. Happy Thursday, all you optimal performers. Welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Muncy, and I want to welcome in our guest this week, a man who pretty much became instantly famous on the internet last week, Andrew Smith. Andrew, thanks a lot for hanging out with us this week. Thanks for having me, Ryan. So, so I joke, and, and if anybody listening hasn't seen this, Andrew wrote an article. Uh, it was first published in, in The Conversation, right? Yes. Right. Uh, and, and it got picked up basically by every single blog and, and uh, you know, syndicated newspaper. I saw it in Washington Post everywhere. Um, uh, the, the article was why it's impossible to actually be a vegetarian. Uh, so Andrew, a little bit of background on Andrew. Uh, he is a you're a professor of philosophy at Drexel University, correct? Yes. Okay. And this is not the first piece of writing that you've done. You, you've had some papers published in in you know peer journals. You've written a couple of books, um, but for whatever reason, like we were talking about before we hit record, you really struck a nerve here. And I think um, we'll get into this in a minute. But I really think that the way this spread across the internet is indicative of the way you articulated a point, uh, a, a unique viewpoint on a familiar topic. Um, so this would be really cool to, to dive into with you. Uh, you are a vegetarian, so we're not vegetarian bashing on this episode. Um, so you guys sit back, enjoy this one. It'll be a cool episode. Before we really dive in with Andrew, a couple of housekeeping notes. As always, go to naturalstacks.com. You'll be able to see the video version of this as well as any of the links and resources. I'm sure Andrew's going to mention a cool, a couple of things that, that we'll link to and you'll be able to go and pursue uh, on your own. We'll have links to his books, um, as well as the actual article that started all of this. Uh, if you haven't done so, go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, let us know how much you like the Optimal Performance Podcast, and of course, share it with anybody you know who will benefit from what we're talking about. What we're trying to do here is, is help people move their mission forward. And if you feel like this is something that will do that for someone you know, please share it with them uh, so that we can help more people optimize their lives. Uh, also, when you're at naturalstacks.com, we are giving away one bottle of Siltep every Friday uh, for the month of May. So when you're there, make sure you sign up for that. Excuse me, at the bottom of our website, you'll see the entry there. So with all that out of the way, let's get to the good stuff. Andrew, uh, like I said, you, you struck a nerve with this. Where did this article come from? What made you decide to write it and, and publish it You know, at this time? Uh, it's essentially a, a, an ancillary piece or a connected piece to, the, to a book that just came out that I wrote over the past couple of years. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, Ryan, I'm a, I'm a vegetarian and you know, people may wonder why it is that I'm questioning the viability 
of, of being a vegetarian when I am one. Well, I didn't set out to do this when I started. It, the, the research sort of took, took me along with it. And, you know, uh, it's sometimes kicking and screaming. <laughs> so, so it really surprised me. Uh, and, uh, you know, I thought after I wrote this sort of really sort of chunky academic book, uh, it might be helpful for people to have just a, a small window into this much bigger argument, much bigger story that I laid out. So uh, I wrote this little 1,200-word piece on the recommendation of my publisher. And, uh, you know... <laughs> That's a great recommendation. <laughs> well, it's really a mixed blessing because, you know, someone in my line of work, you want to say a lot more to, to avoid people... Uh, misunderstanding you on the other hand it's it's the interweb and good lord people are going to misunderstand me anyway so you know you just got to sort of accept that and go with it well we will not put a cap on your your word count today so so you get as many words as you want we'll make sure that everyone understands you um so i guess for people listening in case they haven't read the article give us the the overview of, of what you were saying why is it impossible to actually be a vegetarian Sure. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As, as I mentioned in the article, my one line is, you know, vegetarians, biologists, just, just give me a chance here. Just give me a small chance. Uh, I really made two points in the article. Uh, one is uh, to emphasize uh, plant sentience. And the other is uh, emphasizing the point that I've gotten in trouble with some biologists about regarding the, this question of what I call uh, transitivity uh, that it's not only the case that animals eat plants, we can also uh, understand the, the food web as, uh, we can also understand the food web as uh, lending itself to uh, plants eating animals. Plants uh, eat constituent parts of animals after they decay and you know pass into the earth. And what I'm trying to suggest here is uh, essentially that there's a bigger picture here that, that gets lost when we focus on whether we're omnivores or vegetarians. And the bigger picture is that, you know, we're all part of this same life process and uh, our health is only as good as the health of all of the beings and the land itself uh, that go into uh, creating our food. That's the forest. And, uh, and a lot of commenters, at least the commenters I've seen, I've tried to avoid the craziness, uh, are, are getting stuck in the trees. And I really think, please take a, a wider look here. Okay. So, so I guess just for your sake, on, the pre on previous episodes, we've had uh, the co-founders of Epic Bars. They've talked a little bit about not only sustainable farming, but regenerative farming. Mm -hmm. um, we are actually, uh, this is a spoiler or, or a, a, I guess a, a sneak peek for, for our listeners. We have not yet done this episode, but um, I will actually be at a uh, live event for a future podcast with Joel Salatin, who is kind of the father of polyculture farming. So we're going to be talking a lot about that symbiosis. Um, you know, so not that I, I want to steer you away from that, but for our listeners who may have heard that, um, we want to keep this to some of your other arguments, sure. but, but I also want to make sure that, that people don't miss out that, that that is part of what you're saying. Yeah. And, and I'm, I'm fine to leave that aside, just recognizing that 
what will be coming up on your show uh, <laughs> is is really strongly connected to to my ideas. Okay, so yeah, and I mean, if if it's worth mentioning, mention it. I just I won't go down that line of questioning for those sure. reasons. Um, so. You know, you, you mentioned several factors in that article and, and, of course, the two main points that you just brought up. We'll talk about plant intelligence and, and the sentience in a few minutes, but I want to talk a little bit about this this idea that the food web is not linear, that it is actually a cycle. Um, and it's this, what you described it, or, or you used that the parallel of the transitive property of, you know, from math and science. Yeah. You said that got you in a little bit of heat with biologists. Yeah. Explain that a little bit. Uh, yeah, the, the most, uh, common way to understand how the food web works is to think of, uh, plants as, as what are called autotrophs. They, they, they create their own food source through the processes of photosynthesis. And we animals are heterotrophs. We feed on plants and other animals. So, so biologically speaking, in terms of taxonomy, we we feed in two different ways. Uh, yeah, that's one way uh, to to look at how this works, and and I'm happy enough to go along with that to a point because it's also the case that uh, plants do draw on uh, minerals uh, specifically within the soil, mm-hmm. and some of those minerals come from decayed animals, and, and you know. Some people will call this a quibble. Fine. That's that, you know, it, it, this is a, a philosophical point. I happen to be a philosopher. Uh, <laughs> but what I'm trying to emphasize here is that uh, it's, it's, it's perfectly acceptable to look at this in a number of different ways. We don't have to be locked in to thinking in terms of being a vegetarian or an omnivore and assuming that vegetarianism is necessarily the path to, to better global and personal health. Okay. It, it can be, right. it can be, but it's simply not, it's just not that simple. Well, and you mentioned that it's unlike humans manufacture their own food and in, in doing a little bit of research uh, before we recorded this, I mean, I'm able to find research where, you know, it's been proven that, that plants, do have intelligence that they can actually there, there's one study that that demonstrates that certain plants can do basic arithmetic to basically ration out the starch that they have produced during photosynthesis so that they don't run out over the course of the night and that they can actually use about 95 percent of that with very little left over by the time the sun comes up the next day so they are doing calculations and that's if you want to argue that that is intelligence, it'd be hard to say that it's not. It's pretty incredible when you start to dig into this literature. It, I didn't come up with this idea that plants are sentient, and it's not just based on speculation. I, I looked at way too much scientific research for, for my brain to handle, and uh, what you see over and over again is that you know plants are decision makers in the way that you're describing. They're nurturers. They're teachers. They can they can learn. Some learn better than others, just like humans. Uh, and uh, one thing that you see over and over again, and this surprised me, uh, the the one sort of trump card that people play when it, uh, it comes to thinking about plant sentience, or I should say, there are really two. They don't have a central nervous system. 
That's true. And they, and they don't feel pain. That may be true. Well, uh, they do not have a central nervous system, but evidence shows they don't need one in order to be sentient because they have hormonal systems that work very similarly to our central nervous system. Neurons are just really excitable cells. The plants have excitable cells too. And then in terms of feeling pain, uh, one thing that's really interesting is that a number of plants excrete uh, an analgesic, a, a pain reliever, when they're wounded. Now, surely we can come up with a story for why they would excrete a pain reliever that doesn't involve uh, feeling s- some sort of ouch, whatever that is. Uh, I would venture to say that that might be a stretch, though. If we want to make an inference to the, the most direct explanation, something's going on there. That It might not be like our ouch and probably isn't our ouch, but it, it, it sure seems strange to me that they're relieving, that they're sending out a pain reliever if they're not experiencing some form of what we would call pain. On those two notes alone, I would say they're sentient. But when you go through the litany of sorts of ex- experiences, including the one you talked about, th- there's just too much evidence. It's overwhelming. Yeah. And that's, this is like you mentioned earlier, this is this, this article that we're breaking down is 1200 words that briefly describes the book. And the book is the the critique of that moral defense of vegetarianism. And, and that being that, you know, plants are not living things. They don't have feelings. You know, it's, it's, I guess most people who are vegetarian don't want to kill an animal. So they eat a plant thinking that it's not living. Right. right. Or thinking that it doesn't suffer. Now, you just mentioned that, that plants have hormonal systems. I find that fascinating. Can you share some, some insights on that with us? Yeah. Well, one of the main uh, hormones that uh, plants use is, is, are called auxins. And, and auxins uh, are essentially chemical signalers. Uh, we have them in our bodies, too. Uh, they're just sort of uh, what's called a homologous system for us. We, we have two different signaling systems. One is, is our neural network, and another is our hormonal network. Plants have the hormonal network. So unlike us, uh, they don't have a, a, a brain, so they don't have the central processing system that uh, communicates information throughout their bodies. They're more decentralized mm-hmm. than that. So different parts of their bodies are, are communicating pretty much constantly. Right. Uh, and, and they're doing so through this biochemical process that's not, not like ours, but biochemically similar to ours. Well, and that's part of that has to be an evolutionary adaptation, right? Because, I mean, as I was reading, even though their brain, so to speak, if they want to call it a brain, it's, it's not centralized like ours, it's it's decentralized, as you said, so that if a deer comes by and eats a couple of the leaves, that it doesn't accidentally, or, or you know, it, that's not the one leaf that had the brain in it. Or, yeah. you know, we know that you can, if you have potted plants, you can cut it in half and put it in two different pots, and now you have two plants. So, so you're not, the plant hasn't limited itself to just this root or that leaf having the brain. Yeah, and this is something that's, you know, what we're talking about here uh, in the way that people think about plants is, you know, it's a really ancient bias that I think people in our culture have against plants in favor of in favor of animals, especially human animals. Uh, 
you know, the thing that's amazing though is, yeah, first off, plants make up the vast, vast majority of, of life on Earth, something like 95% of life. So, so we're the outliers. That's, that's worth just noting from the start. Yeah, and, and second, there, there's nothing that, that makes them inferior because they, they're sessile, because they're stuck in one place. Right. What, that, what we should intuitively think and, and what the science shows is that because they're stuck in one place, they have to be like highly, highly attuned to what's going on around them. And as you mentioned, Ryan, you know, if, if some creature came along and bit off our head, well, that's it for us. You know? <laughs> right. But uh, plants can lose up to 90% of their bodies and, and still regenerate. You know, were we so lucky to have, have that, sort of, uh, that sort of capacity? So, uh, yeah, evolutionarily, as you're mentioning, it's just to their advantage, not only to be highly attuned to what's going on in two atmospheres, one above ground and one below, right. but also to be able to uh, recover fully uh, from being eat, you know, almost entirely eaten right. or right. damaged. So now with these hormone systems, I'm going to assume that different types of plants have different systems, uh, different hormones. I mean, how can that impact or influence uh, the way they affect us when we eat them? I mean, we like to talk about how the foods that we eat impact us. You're a vegetarian, so you know, being most or more of your diet comes from plants than maybe the average person. Are there special considerations, uh, you know, certain plant families with certain hormones affect different ways? Or? You know, I, I'm not the, the expert on this. And, you know, this, it, this is really debated literature. Um, I, I've done some reading that suggests that uh, focusing on more alkaline foods is is one way to maintain better antioxidant levels. Uh, I, <laughs> I really wish I had read up on this, but uh, during the football season, uh, I was uh, paying attention to all this information on Tom Brady's diet. You know, Tom Brady and, and his wife are, are apparently like hyper vigilant about what they eat, and, and he won't eat tomatoes, for instance, because of their high, acidi high acidity. Uh, suffice it to say that, yeah. Certain uh, plants uh, do ca can change our our our, our chemical levels. Uh, being a heavy coffee drinker, for instance, uh, does different things to to your hormones than being someone who would drink green tea in the morning. Uh, and on on the basic sort of macronutrient level, uh, kale, for instance, is is super high in 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 protein, uh, whereas you know, celery for something isn't so just like with uh with animal matter uh plant matter has has these sorts of distinctions okay now you mentioned in the article that uh since you since you brought up coffee you mentioned in the article that coffee has a bigger carbon footprint than most people realize and that could be another argument for or against vegetarianism and and certain dietary practices yeah. What what is the carbon footprint of coffee? Why is it so big? Uh, talk us through that a little bit. Sure. It's not that that coffee or any particular plant or any animal for that matter is is uh environmentally hazardous. 
the problem is scale. The problem always comes down to scale and, and not just scale, but also where these plants are produced. Uh, the thing with coffee is that, especially right now, the demand for coffee globally is, is extremely high and it can only be grown in a, in a very small, uh, in a very small sort of temperate zone. Uh, so what's happening is you know, it's, it's, it's a tropical plant and rainforests are being cut back in order to uh, provide more plant space to grow coffee. And you see this with chocolate as well, cashews in Indonesia. So it's not that these, these plants are somehow just ecological terrors. It's that there are a whole lot of us who want a whole lot of it. <laughs> and when you uh, produce it on a mass scale, especially from where it's located, we end up doing a lot of damage and using monocultures to do that production. Exactly. And, and I, I won't go too deeply into that. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. You can, you can cover that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is something that I get into in the book that, uh, I, I have, I'm, I'm not opposed to agriculture by any stretch of the imagination. I'm deeply opposed to, uh, to factory farming. And, and one thing that I tried to make clear and that didn't come across in this, this article is that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm as opposed to horrible, horrific ways that plants or that animals suffer just in as much as I'm opposed to plant suffering. What I try to point out in the book, though, is that conventional agriculture, monoculture, is, is deeply harmful to plants and thereby deeply ha harmful to the land and to us in exactly the same way that uh, animal, the animal industrial complex is, is harmful to us, given the way that animals are raised for food and harmful to the land. These things aren't separate. We're talking about the same sort of industrial process in, in two channels. So, I mean, I think, I think we know why. I mean, it's, it's money-driven, but is there a potential solution that you see? Or I, I realize that as consumer demand and, and the way we vote, um, this is something we talked about with Epic, um, you know, the more we vote with our dollar for grass-fed or, or organic meats or produce that come from, you know, these symbiotic farms, the polycultures, is there another avenue that we can pursue that will help to try to, to turn the tide? Yeah, you know, it, we can talk about this in, in a number of steps. Uh, if, if we go uh, to, to the most extreme sort of approach and and let's just assume that maybe these steps become necessary as uh, as global climate change uh, alters our capacity to to grow food in the temperate zones that we grow now. Uh, this would require some sort of permaculture, uh, some sort of uh, very uh, bio regionally based ways of growing food. And what I'm trying to point out here is that we've lost our sense of attunement to specific places and, and what specific, what grows well in those places. And that simply may become more necessary as conditions become less viable for a uh, giant monoculture. Let's, we can, we can take a, a more modest approach though. And, and think about this in terms of policy, we regard the, the way that food is produced now for us as, as normal. 
But this way of producing food is really only 40 years old, mm -hmm. four zero. Right. Uh, our parents grew up and our grandparents live most of their lives eating in a very different way. Uh, it, they didn't have to worry about their food being laced with, with hormones and antibiotics. It just wasn't part of the formula. So even in terms of very basic policy, thinking about uh, a farm bill, for instance, that would um, start to rein in focusing on monoculture, focusing on uh, corn as a cash crop, and, which has led to the overproduction of corn, as I'm sure you and your listeners know, right. that then has fed an entirely different industry that has made us all much, much fatter. Right. Uh, so for our own sanity and for our own health, and even for the bottom line of, of uh, companies uh, that want to do well by their customers in terms of their health, as well as doing well for their bottom line, there, there are ways to do this that would require fairly minor policy tweaks that would uh, promote uh, organic agriculture, that would promote what's called polyculture, uh, instead of incentivizing monoculture. And these aren't these aren't massive changes, and there's there are, are huge upsides to it in of terms of um, not only our health but perhaps revitalizing rural communities that have been just decimated by the rise of industrial agriculture. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's actually the <laughs> the event that I will be attending is two weekends, and and we'll turn that into a podcast. But they're going to be talking about this new demand, the new markets and, and trying to basically save a small town. Um, you know, there's nothing else there but farming. So how do we make this viable for a new generation? And then how do we copy and paste that template in every other town, just like it all across the U S and, and even around the world. Um, so I mean, you're saying these are relatively small policy changes. Is it really that simple? I mean, they're, they're not small policy changes in the sense that they're they're easy to implement and they're and, and as you well know they're not easy to implement because there's there's heavy money there's big money on the side of, of the status quo what I'm suggesting is it doesn't require you or I or any of our listeners to make drastic consumer changes that would force the hand of anyone and it doesn't require uh, you or I to um, to, to, you know, essentially uh, make huge sacrifices. Uh, in fact, uh, with changes that are, I think are, are popular with a lot of people, popular with a lot of mainstream, you know, everyday people, just because it means uh, healthier, more nutritious, tastier food, uh, you, you can support these things, at least on a popular level, without much trouble. So what I'm trying to suggest is it doesn't require individual sacrifice. It doesn't require individual choices uh, to be limited. In fact, it would increase our, our choices greatly uh, in the sense that we'd have a choice of living more healthily yeah. than we do now. Um, I mean, I think that's something that we all want. Yeah. This is, the, in, in, in some senses, it's a no-brainer. Uh, you know. <laughs> It's hard to talk about uh, the political expediency of all this, 
and, and you know we don't need to get into the crazy presidential politics that's going on now but that's one symptom of a of a what much wider program or a pr- problem that we're that we're uh, facing very uh, true so what i'm just trying to say is in terms of policy the policy itself is very simple and very popular uh in enacting the policy, that's a whole other story and right. a much more difficult issue. Right. So then you've, you've also mentioned uh, something, I don't know if this is your term or, or one that has come from somewhere else, but ecocide, which to me is basically sounds like genocide, but for the ecosystem. Yeah, um, yeah, that's not mine. Okay. But that's exactly what it is. So, you know, this is, I guess we could look at that two ways too, the, the, the destruction for, for food purposes, but then also for non-food purposes, you know, with, with, you could look at the rainforest or, or deforestation. And, and of course, some of that, like you already mentioned, is being done to make room for agriculture. So tell us a little bit about some of that argument. Yeah, uh, this is, this is the bigger argument that I'm trying to make. And, uh, you know, the book operates on, a few levels. And, and I say to my readers, uh, you know, should they have a look at the book, that I really pr- proceed in three stages. And, and you can just abandon what I say anywhere along the way. The first stage is to argue for plant sentience and saying specifically to vegetarians, there are better and worse ways to be a vegetarian. We can, we can do better by the plants that we produce thereby doing better by the land and, and by ourselves. Uh, that's the first stage. The second stage is arguing that uh, vegetarianism certainly can have its place within global diets, but uh, what we want to take account of is uh, what the specific land bases, the specific places that we live need, what their interests and needs are. A lot of places are conducive to being a vegetarian. Urban environments could be very conducive to being a vegetarian uh, were certain structures put into place. But not all places are. Uh, And certain places are really difficult uh, to be a vegetarian. And those places require transportation of of food that uh, then uses fossil fuels and so forth and so on. So... Uh, what I'm trying to suggest is, in some ways, again, stepping back just three or four generations to being a little more attuned with the places that we live. Uh, you know, it's funny. I remember talking with my grandmother, and, and she knew all the dates, you know, when exactly the last frost was, when, you know, when exactly you could plant this or, or, or grow that or, or put these plants out, um, I've lost that, and and it's it's something that I lament. And again, we're not talking about rocket science here. We're just talking about getting a little, being a little more familiar with with where we are and and, and who you know, this wider community that we share our lives with. That's a really good point. I mean, I, I can think you know my grandparents all knew you know those planting dates and and you know seasons for fruits. And uh, you're right. I mean, our generation has certainly lost that. Um, that's a very interesting point. So, Andrew, I want to know, um, and this is not a judgmental question, uh, just your thought process. With all of this information, you know, you you are a vegetarian. What has driven that decision for you? Well, I mentioned that the book was a real struggle 
to write it. It was a real process of discovery, and, and some of it was really gut-wrenching. Uh, I really have two reasons for uh, why I've stayed a vegetarian. The first is a, a practical reason. In order to sort of, in order to live according to the, the ways that I think are best, uh, I, I'm just not well-placed to do it. Uh, I, I live in Philadelphia. It's simply not that easy to, to eat in the ways uh, that the, the sort of localized ways that I think are best here. Uh, I'll admit, though, that's something of a cop out. Uh, it's, it's not a full answer. The fuller answer is that I've been a vegetarian for a long, long time, and I still have sort of emotional responses to uh, the thought of eating meat. Uh, and and what I want to say quite clearly is, yeah, those emotional responses are there. Those, those s sympathies with animals are still there. They're very strong. Okay. Uh, and that in itself isn't an argument for eating meat or not eating meat. Uh, just like having a, an aversion or to something doesn't, doesn't you know, give you a justification for it. Right. It's right. simply a reaction that, I, that I'm still holding on to. So I'm in the process of really trying to work through what my, own, what my book means for me, which gives me a lot of sympathy also for, for people who are angry with what I've written because it, it, it was hard for me to come to terms with what, what I said. So uh, it, I really need to be careful to recognize that other people – you know, whether they don't come to my side or they do, that it takes time to process what I'm suggesting. Has the response really been that uh, two-sided? Uh, yeah, it has. You know, I've, I, I've gotten hate mail. I've gotten uh, people who are, are, are strongly opposed to what I say. Uh, and I've gotten uh, comments or, or, or people who simply think that, it's, it's a really bad argument and fine. That's the, okay. Uh, but I've also gotten a lot of support and the support's been the thing that's so interesting. Uh, not, it, it doesn't necessarily mean people completely agree with me, but I'm getting contact from people who, uh, are doing very similar things or have been, have been exploring this in different ways. So my, I, you know, I, I started this process and I wrote this book fear feeling sort of alone. And I'm learning that I'm really not. I was I, I I wrote it on my own, but I was taking advantage of this of this body of of knowledge that other people are taking advantage of in their own, their own ways. So it's it's been really great to to hear from people who are on my wavelength. Well, that that's interesting that that you've had that experience with it, and you know, hopefully. For better or for worse, all the publicity that this article has gotten will help get more people exposure to the book and that that book can help more people understand that, you know, that they're not alone and, and bring more people together. Because, it, I mean, it sounds like that's ultimately what your your mission is to to educate, to help people think in a, maybe a different way or, or, or bring them, you know, like you said, realize that they're not alone. I, you know, I, you know, this, this really has, has a lot of, uh, emotional meaning for me. I, uh, no one likes to be criticized. No one likes to have people hate you, 
Okay, uh, you know, we all get that. We can we can live with it. But uh, I felt overwhelmed at times by how psychologically and physically unhealthy the world is a, a, around us. And in my own little way, this this is something of a response to that. My way of trying to express that you know, the way we treat the world, the way we treat one another, and the way we treat ourselves they're of a kind. We're talking about the same sort of dynamic here. Uh, so living sustainably uh, uh, means actually living a lot uh, more more peacefully, more happily uh, on on all of these levels. And uh, our, you know, our, our our health is worth that, and and our well being, and our and our and our sense of connection with other people and with the wider world. It's, it's really worth it. And be a vegetarian. If, if that's what you want, be a cannibal. If that's what you, well, you know, <laughs> maybe, we, maybe we draw the line before cannibalism. Yeah, no. It, yeah. Let's, let's, let's uh, set limits here. Yeah. Uh, but, but simply recognize that, you know, we're, we're worth thinking about making our world better. Uh, yeah. And I, I think that's a very, very good point. Uh, and I think that's what we're all really trying to do with with these podcasts, with your book. So if you guys are listening, we will uh, – anybody that, that makes a purchase this week from the Natural Stack site uh, will be automatically entered to win autographed copies of Andrew's book. We'll choose two or three winners depending on how many we can talk his publisher into hooking us up with. And you guys will be able to get copies of the book um, as a bonus for your purchases. So one of the other things I want to mention, Andrew, you're talking about this strong reaction that, that people had to your article and, and maybe to the book too. Um, we've already recorded this podcast, but it hasn't published. It'll actually go out next week after yours. Um, but Mark Sisson is a leader in the kind of ancestral health um, movement. He's written a couple of books, Primal Blueprint and uh, his new one, Primal Endurance. But he actually said uh, on the podcast that he feels as though people's dietary beliefs are sometimes stronger held than their religious beliefs. So with that in mind, it, it, it does make sense that the reaction to your peace would generate such strong response. Uh, I think people are very, it's a very personal thing. Yeah, I, I think he's right. And, and, and I don't think there's any offense in saying that. You, the, the, we're talking about uh, people's identity and, and, and their sense of place and their sense of how they treat others. And these, these are uh, akin to religious beliefs. Uh, and it, it stands to reason that when people are, are, are are challenged by some of the things that I'm challenging myself with here, uh, that they'll react negatively. Uh, one thing that I hope is that uh, people won't necessarily sit with some of the what what I see as as the pretty bad or pretty frustrating reasons for holding on to uh, their their identity in this way. Their identity is going to be okay. Uh, their, their overall health and well-being is, is what counts here. And uh, be a vegetarian if you want. Just be a vegetarian for the right reasons. And, 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 be a, and I, I really hope that you just want to inform yourself about the beings who you make your food, including mainly plants in this case. They, yeah. they deserve it, and, and you deserve it. 
I think that that's a, uh, I just wrote that down actually, you know, to, to kind of challenge your beliefs, to always be challenging your beliefs. And that's uh, something we talk similar about that in, in terms of how you approach fitness um, with, with Mark on next week's podcast, if you guys are listening. Um, but with your beliefs on, on how you eat as well, and, and, and it could be on, on anything. Um, but like you just said, Andrew, I think if, if your identity is tied up in, in a certain belief uh, or practice, uh, that could be a dangerous place. Yeah, you know, and I can use the analogy uh, for uh, you know, a half marathon that I just ran this, this couple, couple weeks ago. Uh, you know, I, I've been sort of stuck in a, a pattern over the past couple of years. I, I've run marathons, half marathons, and I've been working a lot on my form and and actually uh, trying to drop a little bit of weight in order to uh, speed things up. But one thing that I have been ignoring is my own eating habits, and and I I let myself splurge a little too much with with the uh, simple carbs. Uh, I've I really changed that this time around, and I was much more cognizant of of when to eat the simple sugars and when not. Mm -hmm. And it made, uh, as I guess the way that I put it is, uh, you know, I I hit a PR that I simply didn't think was achievable, let alone achievable uh, from what I dropped. I dropped almost three minutes off my time, which is is really pretty good. (laughs) So sometimes stepping out of your comfort zone, sometimes... Asking for help from from experts, and I'm not calling myself an expert here. What I'm suggesting is that I have something that you can take or leave after you have a look at it. I've, I I left a lot of good knowledge and information to the side just because I thought, well, I'm doing everything else right. I can eat what I want. Not true. <laughs> Simply not true. And I was able to do something that has really pushed my sense of, of what I'm capable of doing at you know the ripe old age of 43. <laughs> uh, so you know this uh, it, it's that's just one way of looking at it. Yeah. So it reminds me of something that I tell people all the time: you cannot <laughs> outtrain a bad diet, uh, no matter what diet protocol you're following. Um, Andrew, I know we're coming up on your hard stop. Um, a couple questions for you real fast so we can kind of go rapid fire style with these. Um, first, where can people find your book or find more about you or from you if they want? Sure. Uh, Amazon.com is a, is a great uh, source. And actually, this book is absurdly expensive, and I apologize about that. Uh, as most people know, authors don't really have much control over these things. This is purely uh, my publisher, and I've been fighting with them to reduce the price. Uh, Kindle price is, is much lower than it was, and the Amazon price for the hard copy is lower. I'm going to do everything I can to get that paperback out sooner. You can also go to the site of my publisher, which is Palgrave Macmillan. Okay. So now, being a vegetarian and an athlete, give us one or two tips for um, athletes who, who may be vegetarians or vegetarians who are athletes. I could probably uh, get information from your listeners on this that would be more helpful than what I can provide. But I'll say this. Uh, I think being very cognizant and, and careful about it, your, what you're getting in terms of your carbohydrate intake, not, not too much. Uh, lots of, lots of plant, uh, plant matter, lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, 
but uh, you know, the Ethiopians, for instance, have have very very high carb uh, intake, something like eighty percent, ninety percent every day. Uh, that's that's really hard to sustain for Americans, given the sources of food that we eat. Uh, so and normal daily activity. Well, yeah. So uh, I've been pretty cognizant of about sticking with you know fifty five to sixty percent of of good carbohydrates, only eating like the the simple sugars when it comes to having a really aggressive workout or um, or a competition. And then making sure to get good fats. All right. Don't, don't think that you can skimp on the fats. And, and I'll say this, especially as someone who's who's getting up there in years, it, the strength training helps. And and skimping on the fats is going to make you injury prone. So you're, don't you're, think that they're bad. You're talking to a people that put butter in their coffee. So okay, then I'm talking to the right that's, audience. That's that's music to our ears. So. Um, <laughs> Andrew, last question. We ask all of our guests to answer this one. Your top three tips to live optimal. Oh, wow. That's the last question? That's, that's where we close, yes. Okay. Uh, I'll say first is uh, don't compromise on, on who you are. You know, whether, whether people like you or not, you've got to like yourself. Uh, secondly, be honest. Uh, it doesn't mean being rude, but it means uh, being truthful. And and secondly, get outside. Or third, get outside. Just get outside. Awesome. Awesome. Those are yeah. great Those are tips. Great tips. Um, um, Andrew, this Andrew, has been a blast. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much. This is really fun. Yeah, we, we really appreciate your time. appreciate you sharing all this stuff. I know uh, – well, I, I didn't know this, but I know from talking to you now that, that this – but it hasn't been the most pleasant all the way around for you the last week. Um, it's been pretty crazy, you know, for someone who's used to just doing his own thing and being left alone. <laughs> you, you were thrust into the spotlight, though. Uh, well, we we support your your line of thinking and in, in challenging the status quo. We like that you ask questions and, and are not afraid to to you know look for you know deeper answers and and you know push push our knowledge base. So so we thank you um, and, and we wish you the best of luck. Uh, you guys listening, remember, Andrew's going to hook us up with um, some autographed copies of his book. And all you have to do is make a purchase this week at naturalstacks.com. You'll automatically be entered. We'll send you autographed copies from Andrew. Um, be sure to go to iTunes, leave us a five-star review, let us know how much you like the show. And we will have links at naturalstacks.com for Andrew's book, Andrew's articles, and all the links and resources that we talked about today. Thank you guys for listening. Andrew, thanks for hanging out with us. Thanks for sharing everything. It's been a pleasure. Natural Stack. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. Optimize yourself.